get it on here. All right, come on up. <laughs> okay, this is to the tune of And Can It Be. to do is uh, Mike and or as uh, actually I think it was uh, Start over. yeah Butch Butch said I wanted to review I was talking to Mike about that earlier but uh, to give a quick review of where we're at in Ecclesiastes remember last uh, spring we covered chapters one through six and in chapter one we've got uh, Solomon making a, di a disappointing discovery uh, he finds out that the endless round of existence proves that man is powerless. Things just keep going on and on and on. Everything's the same. The cycle of the seasons is the same year after year. And a pursuit of wisdom, which he engages in, 
reveals only that there is nothing new under the sun. Uh, it is the same over and over. It's the same thing. It's the repetition of history. It's the repetition of lives. And the final bottom line is that man has no means of saving himself. There's no way of delivering himself out of that cycle or finding any answer to it. And of course, that cycle includes life and death. And that's one of the things that Solomon is struggling with as he is now an older man who uh, is uh, back to the Lord again after his uh, departure from serving him. And he's learning this very hard lesson. And he's in this disappointing discovery, he's also finding out that the pursuit of pleasure is like pursuing the wind. Because pleasure is very temporary, it's transitory, it, it does not last, it does not stick around. There's nothing good in mankind, there's something else he's finding out, that we are inherently sinners. And that if we are left to our own devices, our own directions, we're only going to produce more sin. And he finds out that there can be, it's not that there just isn't, there just cannot be any enjoyment of life apart from God. Any enjoyment of life apart from God is really an empty enjoyment and a very temporary enjoyment and one that is not lasting, one that is not deep. Chapter 3, we got into the poem on time. There is a time for, and it goes through this long litany of the different things that time provides or that God has appointed times for. And we see the hours, the days, and the years of our lives in that chapter. And we find that we are bound by time, but we're wired for eternity. Remember, it says in that chapter that God has placed eternity in our hearts. And so we need to remember that, that God has a design for all things. He's the one who's in control. He has purpose behind all of that. And one of the things we need to do, especially as believers, is to identify the advantage that we have even in our disadvantages. And sometimes that's hard to look for. It's hard to look for. And uh, you get into those times of real trouble and stress and trial, and it's hard to try to find the silver lining inside a very dark cloud. But that's something we need to do. And then we must rejoice in God's gifts. God has given gifts to us to enjoy. And as believers, we need to rejoice in those gifts. In chapter 4, we talked about uh, the need of companionship. We talked about those things that are two by two. There was the illustration there of the three-stranded cord is not easily severed or broken. And as we looked at those, we found out that contentment can still exist in our lives even when we're going through severe poverty or when we're going through oppression, persecution, disease, or whatever. We have the possibility of contentment. Contentment is not an impossibility in a life that is sometimes very difficult. And that we learn that God's design includes companionship and community. And one of the things we talked about was that God has designed that believers work together. Whether this was in the Old Testament or in the New Testament times, whether it's in our times, God has given believers to one another to fellowship, to be a community, and to be mutual support, and to obtain comfort through and from. Our fallen condition defies self-restoration. This is another conclusion that was reached earlier when he said man can't save himself. 
there's nothing we can do. We can't reform ourselves to produce something that'll last for eternity. There's no self-restoration. Chapter five moved on to talk about, okay, if there's no seeming hope in this life, and we are incapable of making the changes for ourselves that would last for eternity or count before God, how can it be done? And that's when Solomon says, well, we have to look beyond the sun. Under the sun is his phrase used in this book to talk about life on planet Earth, life as we know it in this present time. There is something, there is someone beyond the sun, beyond this life, beyond Earth. And each of us must anticipate our encounter with an eternal God. That's the point of the book. That's one of the things that comes out again and again when we get to the conclusion of the book in chapter 12, uh, late in November, then we're going to see how that really works out when the book concludes by saying we must fear God and we must keep his, uh, his commandments. And the reason for that is our relationship to God is the all-important thing. It is the source of everything that we need. And in chapter 5, remember that uh, Solomon dealt with concepts of worship. With what attitude do we approach worship? With what attitude do we come before God? Uh, do we remember to keep our words few? Do we remember to pray? Do we remember to keep the vows we make before him, to live for him? All of these things are talked about. There must be an intentional obedience to God's word on our part. And we must place a value on the fear of God far above anything in this life, and especially above money. Our wealth and our health are secondary to our fear of God and, he, and serving him, worshiping him. We must occupy ourselves with the God-given joys. So often we get sidetracked and get involved in those temporary pleasures rather than dwelling on God-given joy. Chapter 6, the last chapter we faced, and it kind of gives us a platform. It's right at the middle of the book. The, the, when we finish chapter 6, we're right there at the middle. It is, in fact, verse 10 is the very middle verse of the entire book of Ecclesiastes. And everything's been building to this conclusion in chapter 6. And the conclusion is that Solomon as king had possessed everything but had enjoyed nothing. And what he needed to do was get that right in his life, get his priorities set. And he found out that life does not come with guarantees of success. And that doesn't matter what kind of success we're talking about. Business, family, length of life, health, uh, whatever you want to talk about, there are no guarantees in life. And so we must look beyond this life. We must realize that our sovereign God is the one who controls everything. He's in control. And if he's in control, we, get, we need to get to know the one who's in control. We need to know him, we need to worship him, and we need to serve him. Roland Murphy closed up this first half of the book by saying that Solomon at this point had reached a point of uncertainty. The uncertainty of life tomorrow is as bad, if not worse, than the uncertainty of life after death. And so that's the point he's brought us to. And chapter 7 in the second half of the book is going to pick up from there and talk about the solutions to the issues and problems. Michael Eaton said, like the Mosaic Law, the preacher is slamming every door 
shut except the door of faith. That's the point. He systematically dismantled everything we might trust under the sun. He systematically dismantled even our view of ourselves to realize how we really are. And he set up that there's only one answer, there's only one hope, there's only one who has that eternity that we hunger for, and that is God, and he's the one we must serve. So that brings us to chapter 7, and on our introduction to chapter 7, I would just say that uh, as we approach this, uh, we've seen in the previous chapters that life is transitory, and death is the reigning king. And what does he begin chapter 7 with? He invites us to a funeral. In fact, he does more than invite. (laughs) He basically exhorts us to attend a funeral. Now, how many of you attended a funeral this past week? Anyone? Okay, got one back there. Rusty did. Any funeral in the past month that some of you have attended? Okay, we've got several, a couple more. Anyway, uh, sometimes we need those funerals to remind us about what life is all about and how we must prepare ourselves. We're going to talk a little bit more about that as we go along. You see, we, we get to looking at these things. We say, let's take, for example, the, the case of Karen Richardson. Here is a family that served God very faithfully in the church. Here's a woman that has cancer, and there seemed to be some hope. They did a radical surgery on her, and now we watch and see that there basically is nothing more the doctors themselves can do. Uh, there's a few more options out there for treatment. Uh, in the natural realm and a few other things but basically there's not much there it's God who has to heal he's the one who heals and uh, remember even though Psalm 103 says God heals all our diseases it doesn't say when he heals them or where he heals them he doesn't doesn't always heal those on earth sometimes we are in his presence before we realize that all disease is gone and uh, there's the, the guarantees are not here in life that God's going to heal in every case, and we're going to talk about that too. Why wouldn't he? How can a sovereign God still be in control when we watch a sister like Karen Richardson go through this and know that she will soon be in his presence? This is the question that comes in chapter 7. And the interesting thing is the writer uses one word here to make a bridge between these chapters, between the first half and the second half of the book, and he chooses the word good. And you say, but wait a minute. We just talked about things that <laughs> don't sound good. Death, funerals. How can this be good? Well, that's part of what Solomon is going to address here as he moves forward. And everywhere you see the term better in this passage It's actually that phrase that is literally more good than, more good than. So every time you see the word better, it's the word good there in the original language. And look at the things that are better and look at their comparison. In verse 1 he says, a good reputation is better than smelling good. I'm sorry if you put on deodorant this morning, (laughs) you know. There's something better than that. And uh, we're going to see that there may be something else talked about with that ointment. Uh, One's dying day is better than the day of birth. And you say, how can that be? Yeah, you enter the presence of the Lord. A funeral is better than a festival, better than a party. 
Uh, grief is better than laughter. A wise person's rebuke is better than a fool's song. These are all things that are mentioned as better in these first verses. And the end is better than the beginning. And patience is better than pride. And you say, how'd that get in there? That doesn't seem to fit. Well, it does fit, and we'll see that a little bit later. And the present and future are better than the past. And here are the ideas, uh, uh, concentrating on enjoying the present and anticipating a better future is far better than dwelling on the past, either negatively or with nostalgia, positively. And we'll find out that that nostalgia is really often very empty. The bottom line is, as we look at this, this is why I've used this title for this chapter, Life is Complicated, Live with Care. Uh, life is not simple. It is not simple. Every one of you in here today know that. Regardless of your age, whether you're young or whether you're old, you know that life is complicated. And therefore, it takes a matter of careful living if we're going to get through it successfully in a way that will bring glory to God. The outline of this chapter, chapter 7, is just two parts. We're going to deal with circumstances and character. And the first is in verses 1 to 14, a person's present circumstances in the light of eternity. And the second half that we'll deal with next week, Lord willing, is a person's character in the light of revelation, verses 15 to 29. This is where we're at. This is what we're dealing with. Uh, and as we look at this, we need to examine ourselves. We're looking in a mirror and we're seeing ourselves. And this is wisdom literature and we need to use wisdom in approaching it. And as we begin then in talking about these first 14 verses of this chapter, uh, you, you know, I, in, for example, this past week, talking to my mother, uh, yesterday, talking with Karen, in weeks past, having talked uh, with other people, uh, at a certain age or at a certain time or circumstance in life, because of the difficulties of life and because of the trials and because of the inabilities that come, the uh, infirmities that come, uh, one begins to turn their thinking toward a freedom and release from the problems of life. And as believers, that is a desirable release from the effects of the fall. We know that. We're sinners, we're fallen, and we're subject to a fallen world. And there is a, uh, a, a sweetness in homegoing, in leaving this and being with Christ. And it is a healthy desire. It is unhealthy if we seek to hasten it on our own. All right? But it's healthy when we are allowing God to have the timing. And listen, we all don't know. I mean, many of us in this room are, could possibly uh, face a possible death or uh, some death-defying circumstances between now and the time that even Karen Richardson goes home to be with the Lord. I mean, think about the storm that hit New York this last week. And there was a man and his wife sitting in the car and they decided to switch places. And after they switched places, a tree fell on the car and killed only the wife. You see, when it's your time to go, it's your time to go. God knows exactly when. 
he knows exactly who, he knows exactly where, he knows exactly how, and he knows exactly why. And none of us knows, we have no guarantee that we'll get home safely this morning even. And uh, none of us can be guaranteed, uh, guaranteed the fact that we might just keel over a heart attack. Look at that high school football quarterback this past week, I think it was on Friday, uh, threw a touchdown pass and collapsed and died of a heart attack. Healthy, fully functioning, wonderful young man in the prime of youth and gone in a heart attack. These are things that this book reminds us of and tells us we need to think about. But there's another aspect of this, and I want us to consider it. Look at these verses, 2 Kings 22, 18 through 20. But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire the Lord, thus shall you say to him, thus says the Lord God of Israel regarding the words which you have heard. Because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and you have, from, you have torn your clothes and wept before me. I truly have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and he's speaking to a young man, and you'll be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes will not see all the evil which I will bring on this place. So they brought back word to the king. Sometimes God removes his people to prevent them from going through a far worse experience. And that's something we don't often consider. We just focus on the tragedy of a shortened life as though we have omniscience and we know exactly what's going to happen in the future and how much better life would be for that person if they could have remained. But we have absolutely no idea. That doesn't mean that God, that this is the purpose for God removing people in their youth or younger years in every case. But in some of those cases, this is what's involved. And it's enough involved that even Isaiah talked about it. He says the righteous man in chapter 57 perishes and no man takes it to heart. And devout men are taken away while no one understands. For the righteous man is taken away from what? From evil. He enters into peace. They rest in their beds, each one who walked in his upright way. They're out of the fallen world. And we think of James Tilton. We've got Rowena here with us this morning. And say, why did the Lord cut short his life so soon and so quickly? We don't know what all was in the Lord's mind as he did that. But the Lord was in control and he knew exactly what he was doing. And... Uh, the way and the manner and all that had happened, that was in his control. And we do need to consider. Remember Isaiah saying that we don't consider it and we ought to. What he's talking about here is what Psalm's going to talk about here later in the chapter. Those who behave or live foolishly when they're confronted with the deaths of people like that tend to try to find something else to do to distract them. Let's go sing a song. Let's go party. Let's go get busy with work. Let's, let's, let's work harder. Let's uh, get involved with other things. Let's, let's uh, do a few more things. Let's add some things to our schedule. Let's, let's do things. And constantly we're trying to ignore it and we don't stop to consider it and we do need to stop to consider it. We need to think about it. And the question then is, why must we think about it? Well, look back at chapter 6, verse 12 for a second. 
At the end of chapter 6, verse 12, Solomon said, For who knows what is good for a man? For who knows what is good for a man? He's talking about any person in life. Let's talk about that for a minute. Discussion. What do you think of as good in life? What are the good things in life? What are the good? Family. Family. Okay. What else? God's creation and norm. Relationship with Christ. Relationship with Christ. What else? What are the goods in life? What are good? Career. Career. Okay. What else? Marriage. Good food. Marriage. Vacations. Vacations. Good. Serving others. Serving others. Serving others. Amen. Serving others. Pardon? Fishing. Fishing. Oh, there's a man talking. All right. Martha? Pardon? Health. Isn't health a good thing, too? Do we, you know, sometimes, what's the point of asking what are all these good things? Why do we need to think about what's good? To be thankful, to thank the Lord for them. And what else? Focus on character, but what else? Not be depressed by evil. Not be depressed by evil. What else? Okay. We must not forget what he has done for us. Psalm 103 says, Bless the Lord, all my soul. And it goes on to say, Bless him for what? For all of his benefits. We're to praise God for them. Not just thank him, but praise him. And there's something else. And this is what Solomon's going to talk about. We are to enjoy the good things that God has given us. I want to ask you, how many of you have been too busy to enjoy the good things God has given you? You know, sometimes we need to take time. We need to make certain we enjoy it. And this is, you know, there are so many things. I could not help but when we came home to just give my wife another hug after visiting with Karen and be thankful of the grace of God in my life of my wife still being here and being with me. We need to enjoy and appreciate the good that God gives us now while we have the opportunity. Because if we don't, it can be very empty. You all probably can think of some individuals who have gone through some tremendous trials, perhaps lost a husband, lost a child, lost a wife, perhaps lost a job, lost a home, or whatever, who realized when the loss came that they had not taken the time that they should have to enjoy what they had while they had it. You think of the man who plunges ahead in his work and continues to work constantly and more heavily as the days go by, even uh, when uh, a wife is ill and he knows is having a short life. Of a wife who gets busy with many things, many good things, not bad things, knowing that her husband is about to leave and uh, leave this earth and die and not be with her any longer. Uh, children with parents, parents with children, and we can go on and on. The good that we have, we need to enjoy because they're gifts of God. 
I want to ask how many of you have received gifts, maybe at Christmas time or birthday time, and you just kind of put it aside in the drawer and have never opened it or never used it. <laughs> and you stop to think, now, if you gave a gift to someone, you would want to know that it was something they enjoyed, yeah. right? Well, God has given us all kinds of gifts. And have we treated his gifts that same way, just put them aside in a drawer and forgot them? Or do we enjoy them? He gives them to us to enjoy. Well, the first thing we're going to find in this chapter in verses 1 through 4 on what is good, to answer that question, one is death is good. You say, wait a minute. That, that just does not compute. Why is death good? Well, look back at chapter 6, verse 12 again. Notice here that we live a very short life. Notice that four different phrases emphasize the brevity of life. The few years. And it talks about his futile life. That word futile probably best translated there as fleeting. His fleeting life. How fleeting? Like a shadow. And the last one, who can tell a man what will be after him? under the sun. Four phrases there that emphasize the transitoriness, the brevity of life. Now the first verse says a good name is better than a good ointment. And the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. Now this good name is talking about a reputation. And the reputation is really what is it at the time a person dies. A reputation isn't what you receive at birth. You've got no reputation at birth. In fact, we've really got no reputation even in the first few years of life, even in midlife. We still haven't necessarily built a reputation. But by the time we come to time when we're going home with the Lord, what will our reputation be? What will people remember us for? What will our loved ones remember us for? What will we have built and left in their lives? How would we have served the Lord? Do, do we leave behind us a legacy of service the way James Tilton did? The way uh, Hal uh, did, Hal Kemper? The way Marjorie Hotchkiss did? I mean, these are people who've gone home with the Lord from this church who left such a reputation that all of us are still encouraged by them, exhorted by them, instructed by them, challenged by them, blessed by them. Praising the Lord for them. Right? A good reputation is better than good ointment. And a good ointment, what is it? Well, there are four purposes of ointment. You uh, bathed uh, babies in oil, infants, when they were born to keep the skin from getting too dry. Secondly, you could use it to uh, uh, just take care of dry skin and, and the uh, sores and the soreness of the body as an ointment to take care of things like that. Then there's luxury. If you've got lots of wealth, you have some of these ointments just for the luxury of it, you see. And then the fourth reason is to prepare the body for burial. And that's probably what is talked about here by context. In other words, it's better to have a good reputation at one's death than that you smell good in the coffin. That's the stark contrast. Yes. And she left a huge testimony. Uh, Marvin's wife was taken by cancer years ago. Six, 1960? Uh, 1985. 1985, not 60. 1985. 
uh, death propels us into an eternal existence. Now the question is, if we have a right relationship to Christ, that eternal existence is one with God and is pleasant. If not, it's like the rich man who opened his eyes in Hades in Luke chapter 16. Philippians 1, 21 to 23. Do you remember what that says? Paul says what? What does he desire? He desires to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. But then he relents and says, but <laughs> since God has still given me a ministry to you, I am willing not to go, but to stay with you. But it is far better to go. It's far better to go. It's a beautiful selection of terms. Now, in verses 2 through 4, we're going to serve a sandwich. I'm sorry if your stomach's growling and you're hungry this morning. There's still some treats over there. But uh, verses 2 through 4 are a sandwich. And uh, I believe that I gave you a uh, kind of a picture of that on the top of page 48 of the handout. Uh, that show you that you have verse 2 talks about the house of mourning and the house of feasting and verse 4 talks about the house of mourning and the house of pleasure and in between is verse 3 sorrow is better than laughter and when a face is sad a heart may be made happy and so as you look at this sandwich the focus is on there but notice that on the outside it's the house of mourning the house of mourning in the Old Testament would be the home they didn't have funeral parlors. There were not funeral homes. The body was laid in state at the home. The body was uh, cleaned and wrapped in linens at the home. The friends and family would come there to the home to comfort the loved ones and to prepare the body for burial and then to perform the burial. The house of mourning was the home itself. And as we look at that, that's where the funeral was. So let's ask the question, what are the benefits of a funeral? Well, there's a number of them. First of all, going to a funeral helps us to better understand and more accurately understand what the significant consequences of the fall of man really are all about. Ultimately, it's death. And what is death like? It helps us to consider the brevity of life and to think about my life is short. Therefore, what have I done with it? It reminds us that it really does matter how we live now. God is concerned about how we live now. We ought to be concerned about how we live now. And we should then, as a result of attending a funeral, recommit ourselves to living our life for God in the light of eternity rather than focusing just on life or focusing on success and rather focus on those things that are good that God has given us. It helps us to prepare to die. No, it's a far better thing to teach a person how to die than how to give birth. Think about that. In fact, some could make the argument that it's even better to teach a person how to die than even teach them how to live. And we've seen some people who have instructed us and told us and shown us exactly how to prepare for dying. And uh, that's hard for us to remember, but we've got to do it. But is it teaching someone how to die? Isn't that really teaching them how to live? Yes, teaching how to live well so that you can die well. 
because the two are hand in hand. Right. What are we doing for God now? What, how are we living for him? How are we enjoying his gifts? Learning the value of comfort. Now, I'm not talking here about the easy chair at home. <laughs> All right? I'm talking about comfort that is given to others in a time of trial and death and loss and comfort that is received. Isn't that part of the service of the body of Christ? To comfort one another. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. Paul talks about the God of all comfort. And he talks about how that we are enabled to comfort others with the comfort with which we have been comforted during the time of our trial. This is another thing we need to consider. When we go through a time of trouble or trial or a time of loss, God is preparing us to help in comforting others who will go through the same thing. You might go through it first because God wants you to be the one ready to comfort those around you who are going to go through it next. They understand. One of the things that, like with Marvin praying this morning for Karen, his wife died of cancer. He's been through it. He's been there. He knows exactly what this is all about. He knows what Kent is looking at in his future. And someone like that praying for and speaking to Kent means so much. And some of us may say, but wait a minute, I haven't experienced that. It doesn't say we can't give comfort, but it just means our comfort's just not the same thing unless we've been through it. Some of you have lost children and you know what it is to go through. And therefore, for when another family in the church loses a child, you know exactly what they're going through. And the comfort you give is so much more valued by them than from anyone else because they know you've been through it. But you know, to be able to give that kind of comfort, we need to have gone through some trial or some difficulty. And there may be some of you saying, I've never been through such a trial or difficulty. Well, sometimes we need to pray that God would allow us to go through some sort of difficulty. We might be better prepared to comfort others. That's not something we normally think about, is it? Praying for something to happen. But at a certain stage of our spiritual lives, we really have difficulty moving a little bit higher until we have faced certain of the difficulties of life. It builds a spiritual maturity unlike anything else. In the meantime, what does Solomon say? Go to a funeral. All right? You know, I don't think I'll ever forget that day. It happened to be the 22nd of December, 1943. And I was home for a few days to spend Christmas with my mother. And a taxi cab pulled up our yard. And I knew what it was. And the cabbie came up and he says, I think I've got some bad news for you, Lieutenant. Mm -hmm. And I had to give that telegram yeah. to my mother. And a telegram about your brother. See, that's, those are the hard times, but there are times, too, that God uses to build us. And remember, none of us lives to ourselves. This is one of the benefits of a funeral. We learn that. Every funeral anticipates our own. Maybe that's why we don't like to go to them sometimes. <laughs> right? Huh? 
Let's be honest. Isn't that right? That's the reason we don't want to. And the younger we are, the more we do not want that because it just reminds us that, hey, youth is, is fleeting. It doesn't last very long, right? And as we get older and we understand more of it, uh, we're more open to it. But really, we need this all along. Solomon isn't saying this just for old people. He goes on in this middle verse, that sandwich there, to emphasize one of the basic reasons of that funeral is that sadness that's on the face and shows in the face produces a more spiritually healthy heart inside. We need to go through sadness and difficulties to have that spiritual health. And the wise person, spiritually speaking, in this context, is a person who improves his or her spiritual health as a result of attending a funeral. That we don't go away and forget, but we use that to change. Let's look at the superiority of wisdom in verses 5 through 12. As we go through these verses, at verse 5 we have, it's better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man than for one to listen to the song of fools. And if you go down further, you see in verse 6 the mention of the laughter of the fool. And uh, in verse 7 we see a wise man uh, is corrupted or made mad by oppression. And then we go on down further and we see that anger resides in the bosom of fools in verse 9. We find out that uh, it is from wisdom that you ask about this in verse 10. We have wisdom along with an inheritance of good in verse 11. We have wisdom is protection in verse 12. We have wisdom preserves the lives of its possessors in verse 12. And uh, as we go on down through here, those are the tie here to the wisdom literature and the contrast of the foolish and the wise. And you see, the wise person, first of all, receives rebuke with humility, patience, and willingness to change, according to verse 5. Why do we dislike being rebuked? Anyone? Why do you dislike being rebuked? Pride. Pride? What else? Yeah, everyone said pride all at once. <laughs> That's one answer, okay? It's a big one. It's probably the number one one, but there are others too. Okay, we think that's really pride, isn't it? Thinking we're better. What else? Butch? Uh, just resistant to change and lazy. Okay, lazy. Right, resistant to change. Yes, Lori. Say that again. Okay, and so we resist it because we don't want to grieve over it. <laughs> we don't want to admit sin, right? Becky? Okay, because it hurts, and because it might hurt someone else, too. We resist it. We don't like being rebuked, right? Have you ever said to someone, uh, you use the word admonition, or you use the word uh, reprove with me, I, I just, you know, that's negative to us, right? We think of it negatively. And part of our problem is that as believers, we need to change our mindset about such terms. We need to look at rebuke, rebuke, reprove, and admonish as positive terms in our lives because it will help make us better. That, that, that involves a change in the way that we look at things. All right? Now, let's go further. In this is this lesson that we become what we listen to. 
And one of the things I thought of were the gates around the city of Jerusalem. One of them is called the Golden Gate. The Golden Gate is the one that's all closed up. It's the Eastern Gate. It's the one through tradition says that the Messiah is going to walk through that gate. And the book of Ezekiel seems to indicate that he will too. All right? And so we think of the Golden Gate as being really the great thing. Well, see, the ears can be a Golden Gate that admit the Messiah, that admit Christ, that admit spiritual things, that admit the work of God and God's wisdom. But the ear can also be like the dung gate in Jerusalem, all right? And it's called the dung gate because all the garbage and trash and excrement and everything else went out that gate out to the Hinnom Valley uh, to be put into the dump, all right? And sometimes our ears have become like a dung gate, receiving all kinds of crudity, filthiness, jesting that's coarse, and uh, the things we listen to is what we will become. What goes into our ears? Whether it's music, whether it's speech, whether it's television, whether it's radio, whatever it is, what is it that goes into our ears? And we become what we listen to. Wisdom, we're told, is not sometimes all that it's cracked up to be. Some people say, well, if I were wise, I wouldn't have any problems. Uh, not so. Even the wise have problems. Why do the wise have problems? Okay, because they're still fools before God. What else? We live in a sinful world. And we are sinners. So even if we've got wisdom, any of us could say, okay, I've got the wisdom of Christ because that's what the New Testament says I have. Therefore, I am essentially accounted before God as a wise person. And yet we still have the tendency to sin. We still have the problems we face. And in this passage, basically the bottom line is that uh, even the wise are, can be discouraged by oppression, persecution, and harassment and do foolish things. Even the wise sometimes can be corrupted by a bribe. Even the wise can even give a bribe at times. We need to remember that uh, these types of things, the wisdom that attracts these type of things, uh, doesn't mean that the person who's wise is more righteous in every case. I mean, look at Solomon, yeah. right? The wisest man on earth. And what does he do? Foolish things. He gets involved in foolish alliances, foolish marriages, and becomes a worshiper and a supporter of idol worship. And this is why this book is being written is because as he finally recovers from all that and has made his way back, he's looking back at his life and seeing all the things he did wrong and all the things he relied on, even as a wise man. Basically, this is his confession. That he was a fool, even though he had been given wisdom by God above anyone else on earth. Now, as we look at verse 8, and it says here, the end of a matter is better than its beginning. Can you think, quickly here as we've come to the close of class, can you think of things where the ending is better than the beginning? Anyone have some examples? A marathon. A marathon. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, I'll tell you, is that true? Oh, man, what a relief to be finished. And I've never run one, but I'm just watching people, I say yes. Graduation. Joe? A landing is better than a takeoff. 
<laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> you take off, there's nothing below you but air. <laughs> All right. What else? Those are excellent examples. Yes. Okay, a marriage. If it's going right, if we do what God wants, it should be better at the end than what it was at the beginning. I don't know about, I imagine every one of you that's married right now could raise your hand and say, yeah, I love my wife more, I love my husband more now than I did when we got married. I thought I loved them then, but boy, what a difference it makes. Yes? Okay, giving birth, right. <laughs> oh boy, when it begins. And even some from conception, there's some who just go through terrible times of illness, morning sickness, and bedridden for weeks and months. And boy, to have that birth done, you know. Anything else you can think of? Psalm is going to mention it later. Writing books, same way. Right? Getting it finished is better than the beginning. Even. Martha Ann? Harvesting a garden. A meal? <laughs> yes, okay. All right. <laughs> so you see, there are a lot of things that have a better ending than a beginning. And what is the context here? The context is, back to verse 1 again, better is the day of one's death than the day of one's birth. Let's learn to have a little bit different view of death. Now our time is up. We need to close. I'll pick up here at this point, and we'll continue on, finish this and go on to the remaining verses next week. I will get more handouts ready next week because I know some of you didn't get them today, and I'll make certain there's more. It's online on my website. You can download the uh, lesson there if you want that you have in your hand. If you have hard copy, you can print off your own. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you and praise you for all that you've given us, the way you've blessed us. Help us to use this lesson today. It's a hard lesson, especially coming at a time when we've heard the news of uh, Karen Richardson. And it, it causes us to think again of these many things. But, Lord, this has been your timing in the way this has all occurred. And we uh, just thank you for that and that you'll, through this, remind us through your word and through what we're watching and experiencing to we need to live our lives more for you than we ever have before. And we'll give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.